May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight we're marking Trinity Sunday, and we've just heard read aloud two pieces of Scripture, the first from Paul's letter to the Romans, the second from the Gospel according to John. Yet, as you may have noticed, in neither did the word Trinity actually appear. While in both of tonight's readings, the presence and work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is proclaimed, it isn't actually until the third century that the Latin theologian Tertullian first uses the term Trinity to attempt to speak about the nature of God. In his book, The Melody of Theology, Yaroslav Pelikan takes note of the lack of any one passage of Scripture in which the entire doctrine of the Trinity was affirmed. But then he continues that, strictly speaking, the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine, but a church doctrine that tries to make consistent sense of biblical language and teaching. Well, to hear a theologian make a statement that the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine, at least not strictly speaking, might sound a bit jarring. But Pelican is actually quite correct. Search your Bible for a clear, linear description of God as three-in-one, and you'll come up empty-handed, at least in terms of a clear dictionary kind of a definition. But Pelican is also right in saying that this is a church doctrine that tries to make consistent sense of biblical language and teaching, to which I'd want to add the category of experience. The doctrine of the Trinity makes sense of the way in which the first Christians experienced God. They'd inherited a radical monotheism from Judaism. There is one God. And in in affirming that, they were utterly unwavering. And yet, their experiences of Jesus, both over the course of his ministry and then in his resurrection and ascension, drew them toward the bold proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Or even to Thomas's, my Lord and my God. Add to this their experience of God's ongoing presence in their midst as Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who makes us children of God, as we heard proclaimed in that reading from Romans. The Spirit through whose presence we are to be reborn, as Jesus told Nicodemus. Add those pieces and things get really interesting. God as one Father, yet Jesus, and yet this Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not even going to begin to suggest that the ancient church then invented the idea of the Trinity in order to solve that kind of threefold problem. No, what happened was that they gradually discovered or uncovered a language with which they could say something truthful about the God who is. In a formal sense, that really takes shape in the Nicene Creed of the 4th century, the creed we will proclaim tonight following the sermon. 
But that creed is itself rooted in biblical language and biblical experience as carried in both the New and the Old Testament. What you might call rumors of God's triune nature are present from the very opening chapter of the book of Genesis. Well, creedal statements can sometimes sound so very formal. Yet to again draw from Pelican, it has usually been characteristic of orthodoxy that it has drawn a circle within which theological thought was to be carried on. That's the formal part, kind of the drawing of the, the circle or the boundary. But, Pelican continues, within that circle it has continued to tolerate an astonishing variety of creativity. Far from stifling such creativity, the doctrine of the Trinity has provided an opportunity for speculation and reflection. It's rich stuff. So the theologians of the ancient church often wrote with the souls of poets and artists particularly when it came to this doctrine of the Trinity. St. Augustine, for instance, offered image after image to unpack the, the triune nature of God. One of his favorites being that of a romance in which the lover and the beloved are so caught up in and overflow in to their shared love that they're bound together in a kind of a threefold nature. Their oneness in this sense is abundantly three, the lover, the beloved, and what they share. Yet Augustine was quick to admit that that, lang that image, much as he loved it, was still only partial. All images are limited by human language and experience. So he offered up another image, and yet another, and another, and another. Always saying they were partial, but always saying they were on to something. Or how about this from C.S. Lewis, a little more recently than St. Augustine. Lewis says, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up in the very center of reality. That's Lewis's picture. A kind of dance, he says, and then a very English way, he says, I hope you won't think me irreverent. A kind of dance... And in saying that, he picks up on one of the loveliest images used by the ancient writers of the church, and one really mined by the contemporary theologian Baxter Kruger, who sees everything from babies and baseball to fishing and barbecues as being signs of the great dance that is the Trinity. Were that Trinitarian dance to cease, the world would simply stop being. Well, this past week, I had the privilege, actually, of meeting with Beth and Scott, who are sitting very close to the front here, a young couple in this community who are beginning to plan their wedding, which will happen next summer. 
And I was quite taken by the design of Beth's engagement ring. The design incorporates Celtic knotwork, which is a good symbol for the binding together of two lives. But it also includes symbols of the Trinity. And so I actually went back to her via email to ask her to reflect a bit more fully on that design. And what she sent to me really merits quoting here. She doesn't know I'm going to quote. There are two Trinity symbols in my ring, she wrote. One symbolizes me, the other Scott. And then in good Augustinian form, she offered up image after Trinitarian image. She said, people are Trinities anyway. They are body, soul, and spirit. The body is bone, flesh, and blood. The soul is mind, will, and emotions. And then she continued, And these two trinities tilt in toward each other. They cleave to the cross that's at the center of the ring. They cleave to the cross and thus to each other. They lean on each other and support each other, hold each other up at the same time, forming a circle, just as we will both lean on, support, and hold each other up throughout our life together. St. Augustine could have hardly said it better. The richness of that symbolism where they recognize trinity after trinity after trinity, threefold shape, threefold shape, threefold shape, somehow echoing from God through us in all things. But remember, it's all the stuff of theological poetry. What holds together these ways of seeing and praying and proclaiming the trinity is a sense of harmony, of the mutual indwelling of Father, Son, and Spirit as being one of beauty and of a kind of ordered symmetry. To think that this is actually defining God is to forget that there are limits to our knowing, our symbolism, and our language. Language emphasizing this dance-like symmetrical harmony is not the only language we have at hand to describe God. In his holy sonnet 14, John Donne prays, Batter my heart, three-personed God, and then asks God to break, blow, burn, and make me new. John Donne's language of being battered, burned, and broken by the three-person God is admittedly startling, yet it does cleave to that great statement from the epistle to the Hebrews that indeed our God is a consuming fire. It's another picture that we need to attend to. A not dissimilar picture is offered by the jazz musician John Coltrane in his piece entitled The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I have played samples of this piece for many of you before, you may be relieved to know I'm not going to do that tonight, although I will cut it into the website version of the sermon if you're really curious. Rather than being marked by harmony and beauty, something one might expect from a piece called The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost on an album called Meditations of All Things, this piece is actually an explosion of sound and energy. 
in which all six of the musicians play incredibly hard with an intensity almost too great to bear. Coltrane does offer a semblance of a melodic line on his saxophone. It's an 11-note run expressing the 11 syllables in that title, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's repeated a number of times near the beginning of the piece. It's reprised a number of times near the close. Yet for most of the pieces, nearly 13 minutes... What one really hears is an intensely powerful and swirling sound. Frankly, it's not the easiest music to listen to, even for a diehard jazz fan. But as a, as a statement of the consuming power of God, of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, it's simply extraordinary. Now, I'm drawn by those more lovely images of the triune God, the images of beauty and of dance and of ordered symmetry, kind of, you know, almost a geometry of, of love surrounding us. Yet, without this other language that speaks of something closer to a consuming fire, of a power almost too great to bear, those other images, the dance-like ones, can become almost too safe. Much as I treasure Augustine's unpacking all of his poetic images... And Baxter Kruger's sense that the joy we find in things so simple as baseball and barbecues is somehow rooted in the great dance of God, we do well to attend to Dunn and to John Coltrane and to those other voices prepared to tremble in awe before the Holy One. If we are to attempt to speak of God, we must use multiple languages and multiple images and admit right from the start that our best attempts will always be limited. Robert Capon's image here is that theology is the hunt for the divine fox. And because we'll actually never corner or catch this divine fox, we must simply enjoy the ride, enjoy the hunt for all it's worth for all that it offers us. The pursuit is the delight. And so, as we turn now to proclaim that great creed of the ancient church, hear it not as a limiting or a hedging in of our imagination, of creativity, or of discovery, but as an invitation into a deeply poetic way of standing in the presence of the triune God the God whose dance holds all things in their being, whose presence is a consuming fire, and in search of whom we find our deepest and truest life. 
I invite you to stand and proclaim with me the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God for God, light for light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. <laughs>